dive into God's Word. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Um, as you're turning there, uh, I, I wonder how many of you have thought about goals this year. Goals this year. We're, we're a week into the new year, uh, 2024, in the reign of King Jesus. Uh, and so I wonder, uh, what, what have you done to think about and to shape up and form up um, where you're going to go this year? Have you spent any time thinking about it? Have you spent time considering? Or are you of the kind of persuasion that think resolutions and goal settings are, are useless? Um, there's some of you out there, I'm sure. Um, <clears throat> uh, is it okay if I share a little bit of uh, our, our goal list, my wife and I? Uh, we put together, uh, uh, she put together her goals, I put together my goals, and we kind of uh, formed them up into to family goals. Um, I want to share with you a few of my goals this morning. Um, just so you can kind of see what this might look like as an example. Uh, here's, a, here's a few of them. Uh, build a network of local pastors. Uh, memorize a Bible verse every week. Attend church every single Sunday. Uh, pay off some remaining credit card debt. Create additional income streams, adding 15%. Uh, plant some garden beds. Uh, many of you are gardeners, so I'll be hitting you up this week, or this, this year anyway. Uh, read 52 books, a book a week, read through the whole canon of scripture, uh, perform five baptisms, uh, do my first wedding, get a Costco membership, um, reach out to an old friend once per week, uh, implement nightly family worship in the Sheezer household, run a marathon, uh, and make worship at church more masculine. Those are, those are, those are, I said I was going to read a few. Those are all of them. Uh, those are, that's my goals for the, for the year. Uh, so I wonder how do those stack up? What do your goals look like? But I think ultimately the reason why we come to the new year and we begin to set goals, we begin to think through where the Lord might take us in a year is because we're all asking one single question, which is this, how do we grow? How do we grow? Where do we go from here? How do we move from where we're at to somewhere, somewhere else? How do we grow? And my aim over the next few weeks is to, to not look to the world and how to grow, especially not how to grow in godliness, but to look to the scriptures to see how we are to grow up into Christ. Um, and you, you'll notice that like uh, some of my goals, I'm a pastor, some of those were spiritual goals, right? Read the Bible, memorize some verses. But a lot of them were like regular goals that you could have, like planting a garden, or adding income to your, um, to your, to your household. Uh, that's because I don't believe in the secular, sacred divide. I mentioned this last week in the last few weeks, uh, that there's no such thing as secular, secular versus sacred, but that I'm a, I'm a Christian everywhere I go. I'm a Christian everywhere I go. So we bring everything under the lordship of Christ. Um, but but, but this, this morning, what I want to do, and over the next few weeks, is to kind of get us to think about how do we bring... Uh, goal planning, how do we bring um, uh, resolutions under the Lordship of Christ? And so if you're in Ephesians chapter 4, say amen. You need a four minute, a few more seconds, say hold up. Anybody? All right, look at, uh, look at Ephesians chapter 4. We'll read the whole passage together, then we'll, we'll, we'll look at one verse. Um, verse 1, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, 
who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we, we just ask that you would uh, move by the Spirit this morning, <clears throat> that the gospel would be clearly presented, that, that you would draw men and women to yourself, um, Lord, that we might worship you <clears throat> in spirit and in truth. Lord, I pray that you would um, make yourself known today. Um, that you would call, call us to yourselves and maybe joyfully follow. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Um, one of the goals that I have for the church this year is to, that we would make masculine more wor- uh, that we make worship more masculine. And here's what I mean by that: is uh, week in and week out, uh, the band up here tells me constantly that you guys don't sing. You just don't sing. Is that true, men? Part of it's hard to hear. I got the guitar playing. I got the drum. Timmy's on the drum in my ears over here. I can't hear anything. I can't hear myself singing. Um, but, but what I mean by masculine is that we've, also, we've often um, relegated singing to something that's what women do. And that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. To prove it's ridiculous, uh, what I want you to do, I want all the men to stand for me. We're going places today. We're going places this, this year. All the men uh, stand. I'm going to teach you guys a new song today. Uh, we're going to sing it together, uh, and the women, we'll sing it at the end. You guys can join in later, but right now, here's what I want. I just want the men to sing, um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to go gloriously well, and here's the point, uh, gentlemen. Uh, your wives, your families, those you lead will do well to hear you sing, so let's sing this song out. Go ahead, Jimmy. Go to that next slide for me. It's an easy song. Uh, you just follow. You just follow. We'll sing it together, all right? It goes like this. Well, we'll be all right. You see, I refuse to listen to the world to say that singing is only for women, and so should you men. It is through singing that we lift the Lord on high. It is through singing and praising our God. Listen, we all sing. I've seen some of you sing the Ohio State's, uh, Ohio State, what's their song? That's right. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll sing elsewhere, but is the, Lord, is the Lord worthy to be sung to, or sung about? You look at the scriptures, gentlemen, and all the places where God delivers, God's people sing. It was after the Lord brought the children of Egypt across the dry, sea, uh, the dry ground of the, the Red Sea that, he, um, that, that, that what they'd done is they, they didn't sing. They didn't sing. And so we as men, as leaders of the church, leaders of the home, leaders of society, we should lead our families, brothers, in singing. Anyway, that's a little bit of a checkmark at goal a little bit for me. Um, return back to Ephesians chapter 4. Let me, uh, re- I meant to do that earlier, but. 
Ephesians is a letter that addresses various aspects of the Christian life, the nature of the church. Each chapter contributes to the overall message of the letter. And chapter 4, where our text is this morning, plays a crucial role in connecting the doctrinal foundation that Paul has laid in chapters 1 through 3 with the, with the, early, with the, the practical implications for Christian living in chapters 4 through 6. You see, in chapters 1 through 3, it's all about the unity in the body of Christ. Uh, in these, Paul begins to lay a theological foundation for Christian faith. He emphasized believers' identity in Christ, the mystery of the gospel, the unity between Jewish and Gentile believers. Uh, chapter 4 then begins to build on the foundation by urging believers to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. In chapter 4, he, uh, it also emphasizes the, the, the uh, encourages believers to be humble, gentle, patient, loving, recognizing diversity and gifts. Uh, this unity is not just a human effort, but is grounded in the work of the Holy Spirit and the common faith in Christ. Uh, later on in the chapter, which we won't get to today, he talks about the, the purpose of the spiritual gifts as and the role of leaders in the church for equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, this theme connects to the doctrinal understanding that the, of the believers' positions in Christ, remember chapters 1 through 3, with a practical outworking of their faith in service to one another and the world. Then throughout chapters 4, all the way to the end of the book, the end of the letter, chapter 6, uh, the practical section emphasizes the transformation that should occur in the lives of those who claim the name of Christ. The theme continues in chapters 5 and 6, addressing various aspects of Christian living, including relationships within the family, between spouses and the workplace, between spouses and in the workplace. The exhortations to live in love, purity, and submission flow from the foundational teachings of chapters 1 through three. In other words, chapter four here, uh, where we find our text, serves as the bridge between how do we go from merely uh, theological understanding and theological foundation of knowing what's actually true to how we live. That's what chapter four does. Look, where, look, look back at verse one with me for a moment. Paul says this, I therefore. Remember, anytime you run across the word therefore in scripture, you should always ask the question, what's the therefore Therefore, right, and what, what Paul's doing is he, he's, he's moving us along in the story. He's, he's pointing us away from the theological truths and more to the theological implications of our lives. He says, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So in these verses, Paul begins with, uh, therefore, right? Uh, he's linking, he, he's saying, this, this isn't disconnected. Uh, everything that I've said up until this point has ramifications for the life of a believer. Uh, it tells them that they should live in a certain manner which comports with the life that they now have in Christ, which is their calling. Thinking through the question then, how do we grow? We must first begin where Paul begins which is that the Ephesian church has been called. This is extremely important uh, as we begin in any conversation when it comes to the question of how do we grow, because inside the question of how do we grow is already a presupposition that we're actually alive. In other words, it assumes that the seed has already been planted in the ground, doesn't it? To say how do we grow assumes that the seed's already been planted in the ground. No one looks at a bag of seeds on the shelf and goes, why aren't those seeds growing? No one. No, and if it's still in its packaging from Home Depot, no one looks at it and wonders, man, why isn't that seed growing? They, they, they already know. 
in like manner. No one looks at an empty plot of land and wonders, why is there no house built here? Because we know that in order for a house to be built, we need the lumber to be brought in. We need the ground to be leveled. We need the foundation to be poured. And yet oftentimes we look at people who say that they're following Jesus and we say, why aren't they growing? Why does their life after their confession or even after baptism um, not show any signs of development or change or growth in godliness? Could it be that those who have professed faith weren't actually given a new heart? Could it be that there's a way of responding to the gospel that looks like true salvation and true regeneration and yet isn't? I wonder, does our Lord and Savior ever give us an example of this? Go ahead and flip over to Matthew chapter 13. We need to see this. Matthew chapter 13. And Matthew here, uh, Jesus here uh, is speaking. Is, he's beginning to speak in parables. <coughs> Matthew chapter 13. Look at verse 1. It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. You see, in this parable, Jesus says that there's four different reactions to the good news that Jesus has forgiven our sins. In the first example, he said that the seed just hits the, 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 rock, it just hits the path. It doesn't even hit the soil. And the birds come and they devour it and, and they, they, it goes away. In the second, it falls on rocky ground, and there seems to be some growth, at least at first. Some transformation seems to have occurred, but when the sun comes up, it's quickly snuffed out. In the third example, there's apparently thorns in the ground, and with the seeds, that ultimately leads to the destruction of the good news. Finally, in the fourth, there is good soil, and this leads to great fruitfulness. Now, his disciples in verse 10 come to Jesus and say, can, we, can you just tell us plainly what you mean? Why in the world are you speaking in parables? And so Jesus explains that Isaiah's prophecy is currently being fulfilled in their midst, that the secrets of the kingdom of heaven are given to some, but not given to others. And finally, look down at verse 18. He begins to break it down for them. Verse 18, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So what's Jesus' point in all this? I love it when Jesus exegetes his own sermon, which is what he's just done here in verses 18 through 23. He tells us, this is what I said and this is what I meant by it. But what's his point in all of it? 
many a sermon might preach something that uh, his point in it is that you somehow have to till the ground of your own heart before you receive the gospel. But is that what Jesus means here? His point is for the disciples and for the church today is that there are, are ways in real time that people will respond to the gospel that oftentimes looks like true repentance and true belief and yet isn't. And yet isn't. You see, Jesus isn't given an exposition on how to actually till the soil of your own heart. He's merely saying what will happen and what is happening. So how does this relate then to our series on growth and spiritual disciplines then? It relates because if we spend all of our time giving lists and things to do, though they may be good spiritual habits, and yet the gospel seed has not landed in good soil, then it's akin to putting up an umbrella over a seed that has no root. It may for a time keep the, keep the, the plant looking like it uh, has life, and yet as the sun moves in the sky, eventually that, that plant will be scorched out. Or it often looks like we're trying to do thorn management, merely trying to cut back thorns without realizing that a, plant, that a seed planted in such an environment will never last. In other words, it's like we're trying to delay the inevitable. And what is the inevitable then? What does this mean in plain speech? It means that at the root level to the question, how do we grow, there needs to be an examination of whether or not we have been given new hearts. Has the gospel truly landed in good soil? And how does this landing in good soil come about? How do we receive new hearts? Is there a heart transplant list we can sign up for? How many questions are on the application form? How long is the wait list? You see, many Christians in life view God in these kind of terms. We must clean ourselves up. We must stop sinning. And then we might reach a level that God would accept us. And then we get our new hearts. But remember the night Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3? He had similar questions. How can you be born again, he said. How, do you, how can you get a new heart? And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus replies, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. That which is born in the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, in Jesus' answer to Nicodemus to the question of how do we get new hearts, in a nutshell, Jesus' answer is, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever read a book on how to be born? Is that a book on your bookshelf? How to be born? Have you ever seen a book written to a preborn audience on how they are to travel down the birth canal? How they're supposed to roll over and be in a certain position to make ease of deliverance? Have you read that book? Does that book exist? The answer is, of course not. Well, why? Because who would read it? You see, babies have nothing to do with their own birth, right? We, we know this instinctively to be true. They had no say in the matter. They had no demands. They had no specifications. They just were. And what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is that in like manner, the Spirit blows where it wills. Jesus says, you hear the word, you know its sound, but you don't know where it came from 
or where it's going. And this is the same truth for everyone who is born of the Spirit. So what this means is that your new heart, like you accepting Jesus Christ and recognizing him as Savior and Lord, your new life in him is not because you did anything, but rather because he did everything. Paul says that we, what we contributed to our own salvation was merely the need to be saved and nothing else. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you were dead in the trespasses in, in the trespasses and sins. Like, have you ever thought about it? Like, why do two people from two exact, like, very similar, same exact backgrounds, same exact church, same exact experience, sit in a church and hear the exact same sermon, one man walks away a new creation in Christ, and the one other one walks away the same as he came in? Have you ever thought, well, how can that be? Well, why is that? Well, it's because the Spirit goes where it will, and God is calling individuals to himself. That God is the one who gives us new heart. This is what the vision of Ezekiel, by the way, in the Valley of Dry Bones means. It goes like, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley when it was full of bones. And he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry and he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? So just put yourself in that, in that picture for a minute. There Ezekiel is. He's looking out. The Lord's brought him up to this mountain. He says, look into this valley. And all he sees everywhere is death. Like very dry bones. Like these bones have been dead for a minute now. Like they weren't just, like they were dead. Like bleached white. And the Lord says to him, can these bones live? And he answers, oh Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord." You see, this is the picture of, of salvation in the Old Testament. This is the picture of the new covenant that we have in Christ. It's not that we clean ourselves up. It's not that we made a decision one day to all of a sudden follow Jesus, but rather that Jesus breathed in to us. So friend, what part do you play in this calling? What is your action in it? In the Valley of Dry Bones, if you're playing the character and the part of the bones, what is your role? What is your character arc? Simply put, it's nothing. Your part in giving yourself a new life contributes nothing. So go to Romans chapter 8 with me just for a few moments. Romans chapter 8. Uh, and throughout uh, the book of Romans, uh, Paul is uh, laying the foundation for the need of the gospel. He defines what the gospel is. And then in, in chapter, um, chapter 6, 7, and 8, he starts to pivot away from like, uh, the need for the gospel, what the gospel is, and what the gospel looks like in real time. Uh, in other words, in Romans chapter 8, Paul begins to, to lay out what life in the Spirit looks like. So Romans chapter 8, look at verse 14. He says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So question for you. Are you being led by the Spirit? If so, how so? 
How do you know if you're being led by the Spirit versus your own heart, which the Scripture says is deceitfully wicked? Who can know it? Are you being led by the Spirit? And how do you know it's the Spirit leading you? Skip down to verse 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, we know whether or not we're being led by the Spirit because God is the one who calls us. You see, Paul gives this chain of events that happens in verse 29 and 30, and God is speaking to us from these verses that he is foreknew, which simply means to know beforehand. He'll say in Ephesians chapter 1 that he knew this before the foundations of the world were ever laid. God knew who would be led by the Spirit. But he doesn't just stop there. He says that, that, that he then, who he knew, he also predestined, which simply means to determine beforehand. That those who, who he foreknew would be guaranteed to be pressed into looking like Jesus Christ. Now the next chain, the chain of events, is taking us back into Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Because it says, those who he predestined, he also called. So don't miss this. God does the calling. God calls men and women, boys and girls, to himself. He is the one alone who gives people new hearts. And this is gloriously good news. Gloriously good news. It means that Jesus has really died for your sins. It really does mean that when you trust in Christ, you aren't trusting in yourself some and Jesus some, like maybe 90% trust in Jesus and maybe 10% trust in yourself, but rather fully trusting in what Jesus has actually done for you. J.I. Packer said it like this, the gospel is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sins and now offers you himself as your savior. This is the message which we need to take to the world. Our job is to point them to the living Christ and summon them to trust in him. I wonder if you thought for a moment of how empowering this is for your walk with the Lord. Have you thought about that? It's not because you made a decision one day. It's not that like you are mustering up day by day the strength again to follow the Lord. But rather, it's because you're following the Spirit. The Spirit is leading you. You can live every moment in the wonderful and magnificent news that you didn't save yourself, but that Christ Jesus has called you to himself. You now live in him. Think of how invigorating this could be for your evangelistic efforts and boldness in speaking of Jesus. Imagine you are speaking with an unbelieving friend, and they're a dear friend, and you decide for a moment to take the risk to speak the truths of Christ into their lives, you can do it knowing that at that very moment the Spirit might blow upon your friend and the Lord turns their hearts to him. So many Christians live in such a way that they think their speaking truth is the thing that saves people. They think that they have to say the right thing at exactly the right time, and if they mess it up in the slightest, then all hope is lost. Listen, what that does, if that's the way we view reality, that like I just have to say the exact right thing at the exact right moment, that doesn't lead us to more speaking the truth in boldness and in love. You know what that leads to? It leads to, let me just not say anything in fear that I might mess it up. If we think that it's 
through our words or through our actions that, that people are saved, you know what that makes you? It makes you the Savior, not Jesus. It makes you the Savior, not Jesus. And listen, if that's you, if you've been operating under that mentality that I just have to say the right thing at the exact right time and not actually walk in faith and say what I know to be true about King Jesus, you know what your response should be? Repent. Repent. You need to ask the Lord to forgive you because you think you're the Savior and not him. This is why it's so vitally important that the writer of Hebrews says, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. If today you are beginning to hate the sins you once loved and beginning to love the God you once hated, do not harden your heart, do not turn away, but also be faithful in speaking. How does salvation come? You see, God could have chosen to, to, to rescue people like in their sleep. Have you ever thought about this? Like God could have chosen to save people because they were sleeping and all of a sudden they woke up one day and the Spirit has come upon them, transformed them. They now put to death their sin, following hard after Christ. He could have chosen to do that. But how did he, how did he design the world to work? How does salvation come? Does salvation come through the Word of God, through hearing the Word of God? This is why it's so important for us to speak. Somebody somewhere once said that uh, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary, which is a ridiculous thing to say. It's a ridiculous thing to say, for the gospel is the word. The word became flesh, therefore we must speak. Yes, we live in such a way that we act as if we believe what we say we believe, but we also continue to talk about it. And this is why I continue to press into our hearts that like, this is why we sing. This is why we sing. Because in singing, uh, the truths of God's word can be planted deeper into our hearts and rooted deeper into our souls than merely you listening to me preach. This is why we sing. So what? You might be sitting here this morning thinking, well, so what, Pastor? <coughs> And the so what this morning is that what we are going to say in the upcoming weeks only makes sense if you start from this idea that you have been called, that you have been given a new heart. Spiritual disciplines are not things we do to become saved, but it is the things which saved people do. Let me say that again. Spiritual disciplines are not things we do to become saved, but it is the things which saved people do. Dude, let me, let me close this as it relates to spiritual disciplines. Go back to the picture of a newborn baby. Do you have to teach a newborn baby to want to live? Think about it. Do you need to teach a baby, hey, you should desire life and not desire death? Do you have to teach a newborn baby to breathe and to turn oxygen into carbon dioxide? Do you have to teach a newborn baby to eat? and want to desire food and digest their food? And the answer to all those questions is, of course not. Of course not. They come pre-programmed that way. They're pre-wired that way to naturally do all of these things. They want, they desire to do these things. This is why uh, like, like babies are the most selfish people on earth. All they want is what they want. In like manner, all those who are born by the Spirit, all those who have been born again come pre-programmed. 
and pre-wired to naturally want certain things. Now, like a baby who never grows up and begins to eat solid foods, so it is with new believers in the faith who never grow up into the faith and begin living as an adult by the faith. You see, the church today is plagued by adolescence. We're merely adolescents in the faith. This is what Paul means when he says, I desire to teach you deeper things, but you're still on the spiritual milk of the words, unable to chew, unable to eat solid food. But that doesn't change the very nature of what it means to be a new creation in Christ. It simply means that the growth of some believers can be detrimental and out of bounds from what we would determine to be a healthy growth. But friends, make no mistake, there is a healthy growth. God gives us the way he gives us his word. So go back to Jesus' uh, parable of the planter. So, so many people say, well, I am a Christian. And my response is, how do you know? How, how do you know? You know, most people say, well, I prayed a prayer one time, Pastor. Or if they're a little bit more spiritual, they say, well, I was baptized, Pastor. To which I say, well, how do you, how do you know that that's not just merely the, 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 the seed that fell on rocky ground and maybe you saw a short spurt of life and then burned down by tribulations of the world? How do you know sitting here this morning that you're truly being led by the Spirit? How do you know that you have new life within? How do you know you've been given a new heart? It's the same as a baby who desires to breathe or desires the mother's milk. A newborn believer desires the Father, loves God. The newborn believer desires to be gathered with God's people. The newborn believer desires to partake of the Lord's Supper. The newborn believer desires to be baptized and identify with Christ in his death and resurrection. Listen, we are not, like, like emotions are important, right? Don't hear me say emotions aren't important. Emotions are absolutely important. Some of you all need to find some. Like emotions are important, but listen, what do you do when your heart says, I don't really think you're saved? What do you do when your feelings begin to speak to you in such a way that doubt begins to creep in? What do you, what do you say to your doubts? What do you say to your feelings? We are people who are led only by our feelings. We, we take our heart and we put it out in front. And we say, I'm just going to feel what I feel. And you can't tell me my feels are wrong and I'm going to let my feels lead me wherever my feels lead me. Well, that's how you get into the mess we're in today. Listen, what do you do when you've been walking with the Lord and you run into the dark night of the soul and doubt begins to creep in? What do you do when you've been walking with the Lord for 30 years and all of a sudden he takes your son or he takes your daughter and trials and tribulations begin to spring up in your life? And you say, well, I don't feel God's love. I don't feel like he's good. I don't feel like he's in control. Well, you tell your feelings to, to sit down. That's what you do. You tell your feelings to sit down and shut up. Because we've been given a word. We've been given the sure truth of God's word. And the word tells us that he's good always. The word tells us that he's loving always. The Lord's word tells us that he's always in control. So you tell your feelings to sit down and shut up, and we're going to listen and believe the word. This is what it looks like to walk in faith. 
This is why so many people, uh, this is why John writes in uh, the gospel, the, the first John, and he says, if they, if they leave us, we know that they were never actually part of us. So many people want to claim Christ, claim to be a follower of Jesus, and yet when you ask them, well, do, you, do you love God's word? Do you love God's people? Do you desire to grow in holiness? Do you desire to submit your life to this? And they say no. What should that tell us? Maybe you haven't believed the gospel. Maybe you haven't been given a new heart. So that's where we begin in this, this journey of spiritual disciplines. Because if we, try to, if we try to talk about the Bible, we try to talk about the sacraments, we try to talk about like baptism or the Lord's Supper, if we begin to talk about prayer and we haven't actually been called by the Lord, you know what that is? It's like taking a fallen down house and putting up wallpaper. You know what the problem with that is? The house is built on sinking sand. The house is in disrepair. It's falling down. It may look good for a minute, but it's ultimately trash. It's trash. And so as we begin this journey, we need to begin to understand, like, do we love the Lord? Do we desire to be with his people? Do we desire to grow in godliness? Because the scriptures are abundant. Like, there's no place in the scriptures, like... There's no place in the scriptures where this idea that, that we're not going to be conformed into God's image. You understand that? Like, like there's no Christian who will not progress in holiness. Jesus himself said, um, uh, I, for sure, they will bear fruit. If you're attached to the vine, you will bear fruit. And we've created this whole category of perhaps they're Christians, but they're just not bearing fruit. And the Lord's like, that doesn't exist. Like, think about the, like, the gross sins of 1 Corinthians. Like, read through it. It's like some of them, they, like, they were wiling out. Like, gross sins. Sleeping with his dad's concubine, something. Like, it's just gross. And, and Paul says, like, hey, hey, brothers, saints, like, listen, thank God we're all in Christ. And then he goes over here and says, let's well, stop that. Stop sinning because you've said that you're in Christ. And he says, thanks, thanks be to God for you, brothers. Praying for you. Talk to you later. But so many of us want to just sit back and say, well, you know, they say they're saved. That's where the whole idea around uh, excommunication from the church comes from. I know we don't like that word because we're saying, well, are you saying that so-and-so is not actually uh, in Jesus? I'm saying only God knows. Like only God knows who are truly his. Like you and I, we can look at each other and we can kind of try to gauge and say, well, do, do we think that we're in Christ? We can look at our own hearts. Do we think that we're in Christ? But only God the Father truly knows who are those who, are those who he's called to himself. But those who are called to himself, they will bear fruit. Like the scriptures are abundantly clear in this manner. So if we desire to, to grow in spiritual disciplines, if we desire to set goals for our lives and where we're going to go, and it's going to be marched out by the scriptures, like understand that we're not creating anything new. We're merely following the Spirit in his word and what he's given to us and what he said. And we pray that the results are left to him. He hasn't called us to produce results. He's called us to be faithful, church. So as you think through 2024, your goals uh, in life in general, you should think through it not from the sense of I'm going to work hard in order that the God may bless me. I'm going to pray more so that God might actually hear me. 
I'm going to faithfully attend the gathering of the saints so that God might somehow bless me. And we should do all of those things. But we do it because we've already been given a new heart. You see, we are saved by faith alone, but we are saved by a faith that's never alone. As Martin Luther famously said. So I'll kind of land the plane there. Uh, next week we'll kind of dive into more. Starting from this, like, this is only for Christians, by the way. Like, non-Christians, like, you, you, we got to be saved first. Repent, believe the gospel. Believe what Jesus has done for you. Accept it. Walk in it. And then let's grow together. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the spirit, Lord. Thank you for the promise, the reality that none of us here are working to save anybody. But Lord, we're just, we're just aiming to be faithful, to speak life, to live life and under the, the lordship of Christ in such a way, Lord, that you actually use us, not because of us, but in spite of us, that when we speak with friends about the deep things of God, that when we speak about how we're walking and uh, trying to follow the Lord in faithfulness, that he might use our stumbling and our fumbling uh, to actually change hearts. Lord, I pray for those who are far from you, who do not know you in this place this morning. Lord, I pray that the Spirit would move right now and turn their hearts to you. Lord, that they would see Jesus as more beautiful than they've ever seen him before. Lord, I pray that to be true for even us who are walking with you or have been walking with you for a while now, that you would turn our hearts and, and, and begin to throw the, 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 the kindling on the fire of our hearts. That we would follow you faithfully. Lord, that we would desire to grow spiritually in our disciplines such that we could honor you. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.